Hello, and welcome to the Tribcast. This is Kay Bailey Hutchison, president of the Texas Exes and resident Orange and White leader. And now, here's your host, Reeve Hamilton. Thank you. This is reporter Reeve Hamilton here with the Tribcast for the third week of October. I'm joined by editor-in-chief and CEO Evan Smith. Hello. Executive editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. Reporter Morgan Smith. Hello. None of us lets the record show uh, uh, wearing protective gear. Although it's getting to the point where you mean I, because Morgan's here? No, Mor- <laughs> Morgan is not the Ebola virus, Reeve. But I, I thank you for clarifying. <laughs> I, I do think it's getting a little weird. The podcast or Ebola? Well, no, the yes. podcast got yeah. weird a long time ago. But this whole—I guess we're not going to really talk about Ebola today. No, but we this talked whole, about Ebola last this time. This whole Ebola thing is getting a little annoying. It, it, it continues to be an issue. That's the update. Right. It's uh, getting to the point now where I wake up in the morning. Do we have a new Ebola case overnight? No? Good. We would rather freak out about the two Ebola cases in Dallas than the 30,000 flu cases. And all what's the happening to the Ebola cases' dogs? Whether oh, or not that, they're going that to do- be that, euthanized that, or that, not. That's a cute dog. Yeah. I think the, King Char- the or dogs Cavalier are their, Charles? Own, they're their own Ebola cases. Right. So, anyway, yeah, it's a bad situation. There's really a task force. Upbeat. Have things really changed? There's just still a task force. There's the one new. No, I mean, you know, the the question, you know, one question, you know, the only one really pertains to this podcast is the politics of this thing. And it's, you know, the politics of this thing are blooming right before an election. So if you're Clay Jenkins, for example, and you're on the ballot starting on Monday, uh, the handling of this thing could, you know, is a clear and present danger politically, if nothing else. Well, the the other side of it is I'm not sure that you want Ebola to be your free media but he's certainly enjoying free media in the course of this campaign by virtue of his role. Look, uh, Bloomberg Politics yesterday had a story whose headline was Ebola's in Texas, Rick Perry's in Europe, presidential or ineffectual. That was the headline. I and thought it was a bogus question, actually. I actually think with the second <laughs> – you media? know, you may have thought it was a bogus question, but I thought from the, from the standpoint of a second Ebola case now being confirmed among a healthcare worker at that same hospital – you know, Rick Perry then put a statement out today, as we sit here Wednesday, saying, you know, I'm in daily touch with Brett Girard. I'm talking to David Lakey, blah, blah, blah. Fine. No, that's the task force. But if President right. Obama were off playing golf someplace in Europe or were, for that matter, doing anything else and you had some massive crisis or perceived crisis here, his opponents would reasonably be saying, why is the president not here? You had me until you said reasonably. <laughs> Oh, so they would be, fine, they would be saying that. I mean, you know, I mean, if Perry's going to be in Dallas getting a phone call, he's going to be in London getting a phone call. A phone call's a phone call. I'm, I'm not right. saying that Perry's done Supposed anything wrong. I just don't think that the, the question raised is necessarily the wrong question or an out of or an out of uh, the blue question. Yeah, right. Well, he can't. He's not going to hold the hands of every Ebola patient that comes to Dallas. That would end the presidential bid pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, so that's our update on that. 
we'll move on. And really, the his trip to Europe is less about Ebola and more about his indictment, perhaps. That's really the question. It's not really about his indictment. It was about pre- his indictment. It's about his f- for burnishing Actually, that would have been his the foreign better question. R- Rick Perry's lawyers are in court. Rick Perry's in London. Is this presidential? <laughs> <laughs> presidential or ineffectual? Well, that's interesting. No, we should say his trip was scheduled before the hearing. That it was. He missed. And was the reason that he um, went – his lawyers went to the court and said, well, you know, he's supposed to be in London. Come on, judge. Yeah. So the judge said, all right, for this one. But he does have to show up on Halloween. Yeah. Which will be very exciting. What will he dress as? I think Rosemary Lemberg. He shows up in a Rosemary Lemberg mask. Layup. It was a total layup. <laughs> all right. Speaking of the courts, we have all sorts of court decisions and things are changing every day. It seems like on two fronts, both the abortion clinic front and the voter ID front. Which which one will we have come election day? The, qu- the question is whether uh, Ken Paxton and Sam Houston are running to be the state's top attorney or the state's top appellate attorney. Well, it's going to be appellate right? attorney the way this is all going. I mean, right? every yeah. everything is ending up in an appeals process. You've got school finance. You've got voter ID. You've got gay marriage. You've got abortion. I mean, it's really kind of a remarkable amount of activity on the legal front. Yeah, federal judge in Corpus Christi late last week – um, in a really scathing opinion, 147 pages, um, said that the state's voter ID law is unconstitutional. Uh, it operates like a poll tax because it effectively forces people to pay money for the ID that they need to vote, that it um, intentionally was it designed to discriminate against African-Americans and Hispanics. Uh, she didn't like it one bit. And she said, you know, the state shouldn't use it in its current elections, even though we're close to them. The state... Uh, Attorney General Greg Abbott went to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans, and that court stayed her order and said, go ahead and use the voter ID um, law in this election because you're so close to the election, it would be disruptive to change things. So, so it's, it's not that, actually and, a rebuke of her ruling. It's and, just a timing question. Well, right. And so – and then the plaintiffs, to that point, the plaintiffs went to the Supreme Court uh, this morning, Wednesday morning as we taped this, and said that – the judge found that this is discriminatory, and it may well be discriminatory, and it would be more disruptive to discriminate than to stand down on the use of the photo ID. So, yeah, so, how, how so they're asking the Supremes to say, um, don't use voter ID, voter ID this time, just proceed. How confusing would it be to show up without an ID and have someone say, oh, well, we didn't want to confuse you, so we actually let this requirement stand? Seems like it's, it, you know, the whole the, – I mean, the whole voter ID thing – Whatever side you're on has been completely confusing all the way through September and October. I mean, they've, they've got voters going, you know what, just tell me what I need for this thing. They are training the, – the Secretary of State is training election judges for both possibilities. If you do have to have voter ID, here are the seven voter IDs you have to have. There's a list, Texas driver's license, you know, approved, you know, this, that, and the other thing. If you don't have to have it, here's the old procedure. So they're training them both ways, waiting for the courts to come down and say – Go this way or go that way. And it seems inevitable that there's going to be somebody who's working at the polls, checking people in, that is going to be confused and not follow the right protocol right. or procedure or whatever is in place at that time. And, I mean, I mean, we're going to see cases of that, but I don't know how, what kind of effect that's going to have, you know, overall. Right. It would have to be a close election for, I think, I mean, it would have to be a close election for the cases that are kind of held in um, – in provisional ballots to decide the elections. So, we'll, you know, we'll see what the confusion reaps. But there here. might be some close elections here and there. No, they won't. 
Well, there could, the be some, there, could, there could be there could there be there could be there could be anything at the statewide level, local right. elections, all kinds of stuff, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, okay. I'm more interested in the abortion stuff. Okay, talk so, about uh, it. tell us about that. <laughs> well, I'm interested in the fact that by a six to three decision, with with John Roberts and 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 Anthony Kennedy joining the four liberal members of the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court said that Texas cannot enforce for now the new abortion law and so the clinics that closed can now reopen. So I think I think it's fascinating. I think it is is a stunning decision. Now ultimately it may mean nothing. But you now have the John Roberts court which first refused to take the gay marriage case mm-hmm. effectively legalizing gay marriage or or giving a seal of approval to the to the legalization of gay marriage in in more than half the states in the country. Then that's followed by the Roberts court refusing to keep the abortion clinics of Texas closed. I mean, pending, it's, pending, but, pending. But, but it doesn't make yes, pending. No, I mean, it does, it, it does it make may, a difference. It, it makes may a big ultimately, difference. it may ultimately find that gay marriage is illegal. It may ultimately find that the Texas law is fine and the abortion right. clinics should close. Peace. I get that. But but here on who October would have supp- who would have believed that the Roberts court would have on gay marriage and on abortion found back-to-back the way that they did. It's amazing. This is the same Roberts Court that upheld Obamacare? Well, it's really... But I think if you're a conservative and you're looking at the Supreme Court and you're talking about activist judges getting in the way of stuff, activist judge number one is John Roberts, right? I mean, if you... Slap your forehead. The Supreme Court is... This is not like, oh, oh, George H.W. Bush appointed David Souter and promised us that he was one of us and he turned out (laughs) not to be. This is John freaking Roberts. I think you just ruined my chances of getting him to do a TripCast intro. David Souter? I think (laughs) your chances are John Roberts. But this is John Roberts. And I think the conservatives conservatives in this state who are kind of, you know, out of their cups about HB2 not being enforced... Have probably got to look at John Roberts and go basically what the f. But they did get that uh, the voter ID stuff sort of sort, so that's a little victory. It was a mixed day, <laughs> <laughs> one and one for the day. I think on balance, I mean that's it's just it's, I think I think the abortion thing is kind of an amazing. So the abortion thing. argument to the Fifth Circuit was that you know you shouldn't close these clinics while you're deciding whether the law that closes them is constitutional. You should leave them open while this is pending. And the Fifth Circuit said, no, it's an inconvenience. It's not an undue burden. It's not an undue burden. And the Supreme Court said, yeah, it is too. And they also, I thought it was interesting, they also, the, one effect of their ruling was they um, lifted a requirement that clinics in McAllen and El Paso employ doctors who had admitting privileges at hospitals within 30 miles. That's like a whole so, other thing, mm-hmm. right? Well, right, but it's another part of the same law. And they basically right. are saying don't disrupt this business while you're deciding whether the law disrupting this business is legal or not. And when will that be decided? Pending I mean, what? it's a black box. It's just, you know, the Fifth Circuit moves at the speed the Fifth Circuit determines, you know? <laughs> well, we got to move along. So let's okay. talk about something that I think Evan is very excited to talk about, which is campaign advertising. I'm a big campaign ad guy, man. I love that <laughs> stuff. And I know that nobody watches TV anymore and that many ads are now released just for the web and that people don't actually see them unless – they're going online or we point out that they've been really – it's like I think you know in the old days you would release a controversial ad to CNN 
And everyone would hear it on their radio and they would see it gathered around because it was news as opposed to it was an ad and they would get all this free coverage of it, right? Go down and listen to the town crier, read it on the corner. (laughs) (laughs) But I think ads have been really interesting even in these non-competitive, largely non-competitive races. You know, today we had dueling ads released, for instance, the lieutenant governor's race, Dan Patrick attacking Letitia Vandepute as being too liberal. Letitia Vandepute put an ad on today talking about how Dan Patrick um, is saying, well, there are only certain instances in which rape – is, you know, a, a big problem and we need, you know, different definitions of rape or different perceptions of rape. Rape is rape is the basis for the Letitia Vanderpeet ad and Dan Patrick is somehow disrespecting women by trying to make distinctions on that. But obviously the ad that's captured everybody's attention, not just today. Long wind-up, Chief. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to give people the kind of context that you ordinarily provide, Ross the Explainer. I had, a, I had a bet that Evan couldn't get the phrase rape is rape into the Tribcast today, but well, he managed bi- to do it. Your bingo <laughs> Congratulations. But the Davis ad, which has gotten the attention of everybody nationally and has become a big talking point. This is Wendy Davis. The Wendy Davis ad. Not Yvonne Davis. Or Sarah. Or, or Sarah John. Davis. Lots John, of Davises. All the Davises. Or Sammy Davis. <laughs> the, the Wendy Davis ad is really, I think, the, the most interesting and most important consequential ad of the entire campaign. Right? Agree? Shall, I, yeah, it's the talker. Let's describe it. Basically, it opens with yeah. a shot of an empty wheelchair and a voiceover that says, A tree fell on Greg Abbott. And then it continues. <laughs> Ross, that's all you remember. <laughs> he basically, they basically well, that is said, all I remember. That's all people are arguing it, about. It, it basically says that Greg Abbott received a legal settlement that he should have received, according to the Davis campaign, for after a tree fell on him and crippled him, and that he, as attorney general and as a judge on the Supreme Court before he was attorney general, has denied similar remedies and relief to people situated, you know, um, in a bunch of different cases, not necessarily. Um, cases exactly like his, but that he's not a pro-victim guy, and that he's been he's and the closing line is Greg Abbott. He's not for you. Um, the Abbott people, who invoked the wheelchair first, the other really effective ad of this cycle, and why I hesitated when you said you know the most consequential. The other really effective ad this cycle is a Greg Abbott ad, talking about his recovery after that accident. This and, is the one where he's he's. And, uh, pushing himself up the garage ramp, uh, up a pushing garage, himself up a garage ramp, several just one floors more, of just a garage. Right, and yep. you know, it's the um, it's a really good ad. It's a very, very good ad. And it's he also really has he also has an ad where he is in traffic, saying a guy in a wheelchair moves faster than traffic in Texas. Although right. he's not literally on that road as Ken Herman columnized about it. Was well, it's a green a screen, a green screen it? deal, yeah. With cars parked behind oh, wow. him, you, just, yeah. you can't trust politicians these days. <laughs> look, 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 I think Ross. Next made... thing you're going to tell me is the weather guy wasn't standing in front of a real map. <laughs> really? Are those John Stewart correspondents and they're actually in Uzbekistan? They're not actually way? correspondents. Yeah, right? not correspondents. Uh, Ross brings up a great point that really has been job, lo- has been lost. Wait, in wait, a what lot did I say? What did I discussion <laughs> about the Davis ad? Is that the Abbott campaign really made his disability and the wheelchair? part of the campaign first. Right. And so it's it's interesting. You know, the Davis campaign, it was said back in January, if you become a celebrity and the basis of your campaign is biography, right? then, then biography is fair game to attack. That was what happened in the Davis case. The Abbott campaign has, in a very strategic way, been talking about his disability and talking about the wheelchair, symbolically and substantively, since his announcement. Right. That was mm-hmm. a pretty pivotal part of his announcement remember speech. you know i literally have steel in my spine yeah. Right? Yeah. right i remember Sad actually i remember actually a couple of, of years ago even being in an event at which greg abbott was speaking where he addressed an audience 
and said apropos of nothing. You may be wondering why I'm in this wheelchair. And I remember thinking to myself, I've watched Greg Abbott in public life for many, many years as attorney general, as state Supreme Court justice. I've never heard him engage. It was sort of like it was a sign that I wonder if maybe he's kind of beginning to talk about it because when he runs for a higher office, it's going to be— In his first races right? for Supreme Court and initially for attorney general, this was a taboo subject which was sort of off the— R- off Right. The... So it was, there was something jarring a little bit about hearing him talk about it, and eventually it became a thing where he would talk about it out in the campaign. He talked about it when he announced, and he's talked about it, and it's become an issue. So the disability in the wheelchair, as far as it goes, have been parts of his pitch, and it's a compelling story. It's a positive, right? The adversity he's overcome and all that. So the mere fact that the Davis campaign is talking about his disability or about the settlement in the court case is not that much of a shocker because just like her biography became fair game when she built her campaign around it, in some respects, his campaign has used his biography. And so – it seems like a legitimate topic of conversation. I think it's fair game. The issue is just whether the there was any wisdom tactically in using the image of the empty wheelchair at the beginning of the ad. I actually think had she not used the image, this would be another in a series of Greg Abbott is only in this for insiders ads that she's already run that nobody really paid attention to. And we wouldn't be talking about it now. So in some ways, she got what she wanted. She wanted the ad to be paid attention to, and she got it. Well, and it was the use of the image, which I happen to think was clumsy politically, but effective tactically in the sense that she wanted to accomplish getting attention. I don't think the image was necessarily clumsy as much as just the opening line was sort of inartfully phrased. and The opening line was iterated. jarring. I mean, yeah. you a tree fell on Greg Abbott, and you're just like, Why not? what? That sounds when terrible. Greg Why? Got hurt w- right, or something. right, right. But I mean, it's sort of neither here nor there. I think the anytime she mentioned the wheelchair ever this sort of faux outrage was sort of baked into the cake that people would come out and say well there's no question that the no. avid outrage machine has been as, as i said idling at the curb right for about a year waiting for this to happen and they pounced in a, in a huge you way you know what was interesting i was out of um, I was out of the newsroom i was sitting at zoker park listening to bands at acl and so i saw this um, you know, with spotty phone coverage out there, I got an email that said um, Wendy Davis is doing this ad, and then I started seeing the emails from the outrage machine, as you put it, and I had a much different impression of this ad looking at that stuff than when I finally got to a Wi-Fi spot and could actually watch the ad. It was much um, more offensive when you were reading the offended comments than it was when you actually saw the ad. It's like, yeah, that's a pretty tough ad. It comes out, it punches you in the nose. It's you know, it starts with a a line like that that gets your attention, goes through this thing, and you know, as an as an attack ad, I think it, you know it, and it's not really outside the realm. In the in the race that Rick Perry ran against Bill White, there was an ad with the wife of a deceased police officer effectively accusing Bill White's policies of getting her husband. This killed. was a sanctuary cities deal or something, right? Yeah, yeah, there yeah. was a there was a secure, sanctuary cities ad. There was an ad in the there was an ad in the race between Rick Perry and Tony Sanchez. Where Tony Sanchez's bank was linked to a Ma- Manuel, drug cartel, Manuel Noriega, right? That a cartel that um, had killed a DEA agent named Enrique Camarena. So it's like you know oh, this this, this, this right, one killed yeah. a cop. This one killed a DEA agent. You know, uh, Jim Maddox accused Ann Richards of using coke. You know, tough ads like this are not 
unusual in Texas politics. And you're trying to break through, you know, in a pure political advertising sense, you're trying to break through all of this other noise and you want something impactful and effective and they got it. I mean, and she has gotten attention for it, but I guess the, the second question is who is she who is she reaching, who is she motivating with the argument behind the ad once you get past the outrage and I don't know. I don't know if that's if that's going to be effective. Is anybody who is mad about this ad somebody who was planning to vote for Davis before and is now not going to, or are the only people who are mad about this ad people who are not going to vote for Davis to begin with? Well, more to Morgan's point, did this get anybody off the couch who wasn't right. going to vote? Right. Look, the, 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 uh, there's a Clorox theory of Texas politics these days, blue or blues and red or reds. Right. The people the people who care about this stuff are people who are deeply in, in, in kind of entrenched in their ideological zones. Right. And I think that this ad only blues, blues up the blues and reds up the reds more. I'm not sure that in the middle that, that you're going to have a lot of people who are going to go, oh, because of this ad, I'm going to vote for her or, or because of this ad, I'm not going to vote for her. Maybe it gins up her base a little bit more. Maybe it gins up his base a little bit more. But if people are talking about it, that water coolers, to the extent those still exist, it might get some people interested that weren't previously interested, I guess. Is the and, the su- and to Ross's saying, point, right? the substantive issue behind the ad is legitimate. In pre-tort reform Texas, it was possible for someone to be horribly injured as he was and to sue the responsible parties and to get a large settlement because it was a more pro-plaintiff world. In the post-tort reform era, which is a more pro-defendant world, harder to get a trial order to take a case, harder to see that such a case would be taken seriously in the courts, the backdrop for such a settlement does not exist or does not exist to the same degree. Her argument is that he supported tort reform and in post-tort reform Texas, what he achieved in the course of litigating this and ultimately getting a settlement might not be possible. His own lawyer says that. His own lawyer, Don Don Riddle, Riddle, says that. It is not an unreasonable point to make. This is not about the substance of the ad, however. This ends up being about the tactic. Well, the substance of the outrage has been a bit muddled, too. I think I thought it was weird the Abbott campaign sent out a press release yesterday saying that Hillary Clinton had validated their criticism of Wendy Davis's ad because Hillary Clinton mentioned in a speech that FDR might not have been elected president if he had been shown in a wheelchair back in, you know, the early 20th century. And it was just sort of like, well, you're saying that Abbott's going to be the next FDR? What is your point here? And I think that their outrage is sort of lacking in Right. I think it, that press uh, release was legibility. sent out of the fear that if they didn't send something out, Twitter might stop. Right. <laughs> yeah, they've certainly been working the Twitter machine and everything else right. pretty hard. Well, we're going to move on. Okay. Okay. <laughs> that got your approval. <laughs> I want to hear more Morgan. Well, Morgan's here to tell us a little bit about uh, how students are going to succeed while failing all their exams, basically. <laughs> well, I think in kind of the post, so in the 2013 legislative session, lawmakers substantially dropped the number of exams that high schoolers have to take. They didn't really touch uh elementary and middle school exam requirements. But instead, we've seen um, in since then, we've seen uh, the commissioner of education waive 
requirements that fifth and eighth graders have to take, uh, have to pass a math exam to move on because we are in a transition to new curriculum standards. And then we've also seen the delay of raising passing standards on all of the exams across the board, which was kind of a scheduled rollout to allow schools the ability to transition. We're now three years in and we're still kind of on the first year, the lowest passing standards. So I think this all just feeds into a larger conversation about, you know, why, what are these exams actually measuring? Are they serving any kind of purpose in our education system other than, you know, creating almost these artificial benchmarks that we, that we try and, and measure what's going on by? And so basically, you're going to get a bunch of students moving on without having proven on the test that they are ready to. Yeah, I think that's the fear. And I think that, you know, if you talk to educators, they'll say, a lot of educators at least will say that, you know, it's good that we have a flexible system because we can tell at the local level a lot better about whether a child can move on than what shows up on a test that a student takes on one day. Um, But I think kind of when you look at the larger system and you see kind of high graduation rates yet very... uh, little movement in uh, the the students who are prepared for college that are graduating, who are considered career ready when they're graduating. Um, I think there's a question of, you know, what does a high school diploma mean in Texas? And does it actually mean that you're going to be able to do well if you go on to college, if you go on to trade school, if you go into the workforce? Does it make any sense to wait until people are about to graduate from high school to find out whether they learned anything? I mean, wasn't that why they initiated the early tests in the first place? Catch them while they're still in school. Right, exactly. You know, we wanted some kind of measure that we could take, okay, this is what they learn now. Okay, a year later, this is what they've learned. This is where they're behind. Let's fix this by the time they get to 11th grade. Um, and, and, yeah, that's that's the other thing is, you know, there's no – if if we kind of continue on this path towards um, fewer and fewer state standardized tests, I think that there is a, a definite concern that, you know, how are we going to be able to, to gauge where students are in their academic careers, you know, before they're already at 11th grade and we're testing them to see if they should graduate. Or even after 11th grade, it sounds like there are all these students that may or may not graduate based on how they do in December and that if they fail the test again, they're basically their only hope is uh, Representative Huberty comes in with a bill <laughs> right. to, that lets them graduate. You know, right. I mean, how many students are going to have in the gallery desperately watching <laughs> and try to move Right, this and the thing? other part is, like, this is a test that most of them take at the end of their sophomore year, and they have retaken, in some cases, three, four, five times, and they still cannot pass. December is their last chance to pass. And, I mean, yeah, and a, and a lot of – there's testimony that from – a lot of educators at a recent legislative hearing that these are students that would be graduating otherwise. They have all the attendance requirements. They've completed all the course credits. They passed the four other standardized tests, but it is, you know, this one in in a lot of cases, this one English two exam that's holding them back. So, what is it about this test? I mean, is there some theory here? So there are several kind of circumstances at play for this current class of 2015. Um, They started high school right as the new uh, testing requirements were in play. So they took separate reading and writing tests for English 2 that the commissioner then decided to combine into one. And they're the only class that had to do that. And then they also were the first 
crop of students that were taking the new uh, STAR exams when they were in 10th grade. So they were, uh, there was a lot of delay on the part of the state in getting teachers the proper information about, you know, the structure of the test. And then once the students took the test, teacher a lot of teachers felt like they didn't have really accurate and detailed reports about like the questions students missed and why they failed so they weren't able to remediate them in time hmm. so where do you think it goes um i don't know i mean i think that this has to happen really quickly during the legislative session for it to take for it to actually impact in, in kind of the case of this group of in the class of 2015. And I think that it's hard to get things done in the legislature quickly and with the two thirds support that it would need to take effect immediately. But I do think it, do, it does just it does just contribute to this larger, I think, discontent and questioning of, you know, why we have standardized tests in Texas you know, what kind of better methods there might be out there to assess students. HB5, it turns out, was not the end of the conversation. Right. On standardized it's never, ever, ever the end of the conversation. <laughs> oh, we fixed it. Oh, we fixed it. Well, it's good to know that failing up is not just for the Texas Tribune anymore. <laughs> um, we would like to encourage everyone to send their questions and comments to tribcast at texastribune.org and uh, go to iTunes and review us positively. And then we would also like to thank Shiny Ribs for doing our music. And on behalf of Morgan, Ross, Evan, and our producer Todd, this is Reeve. Thanks for listening. For Christ's sake, say yes! <laughs>